Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. popular science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Tredosh. I'm Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. Chanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, um, listeners, uh, as many of you who follow us uh, on Twitter and pay attention to the Twitter science sphere are probably aware, uh, Chanda is a brilliant uh, physicist, science communicator, and uh, now newly published author. Uh, so why don't you tell us about your new book before we get into the show? Yeah. My book is called The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space Time, and Dreams Deferred. And I think the best summary is probably that it's a holistic look at the doing of particle physics and cosmology. So everything from the standard model of particle physics to how race and gender and gender identity um, and sexual orientation and all of these things shape how physics actually gets done and what physics and astronomy should be in the future, what our relationship to colonialism and liberation work should be. Awesome. It is on my massive TBR pile, and I am very excited to get into it. Uh, so on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, writing books, etc. And we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, would you like to start with your tease? Uh, I'm going to be talking about the jumping Frenchman of Maine. Frenchman plural. All, all French, all men? Yes, well, I assume so. All French, okay. all jumping, all the time. Interesting. Uh, Shanta, how about your teas? Your banana is emitting particles, and the particles are non-trinary. What am I talking about? Well, I sure don't know. So, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Looking I was just going to say, out. you lost me at trinary. <laughs> it's a good word. All right, my tease is uh, that I would like to talk about sea slugs who detox by cutting their own heads off. Look out, goop. <laughs> <laughs> the, ne the, the next big craze. Yeah, it is. You know, uh, Bethany Brookshire, who's a, a great science communicator on Twitter, joked about, like, you know, you lose weight, you get rid of toxins. Real life hack, real wellness stuff. 
Um, but yeah, that's just, <laughs> just get rid of your whole head yeah. or your whole body. Whole body. You know? mm. Who needs to be a, a physical body? That is kind of what the wellness industry is about, isn't it? Anyway, what do we want to start with? I I feel like maybe Sarah, it's been a while since uh, since you opened the show. That's true. I usually pick such depressing things that I have to be sandwiched in between other people. <laughs> this one isn't sad. It's actually fine. <laughs> Great. Well, then why don't you just leap into it? You know, Frenchly. as someone in New Hampshire, I'm I'm really excited to learn about what my neighbors have been up to. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was quite a while ago, so okay. I don't know that there are any jumping Frenchmen okay. left in Maine. Um the the story begins in the nineteenth century. So it uh, it starts with a, a neurologist named George Miller Beard. Uh, he was a, a Civil War veteran, a Yale graduate, and like quite a quite a progressive man for his time, which is not that progressive for today, but that's okay. Um, he like argued for a lot of reforms to protect people who had mental illnesses, which like at the time was uh, fairly revolutionary. Um, he also coined the term neurasthenia which is the idea that of like fatigue that is caused by the hardships of modern life, which feels like very 21st century, but like in the 19th century, they were very fatigued by all of modern life. Um, also, as a side note, I learned that he like very publicly argued that uh, President Garfield's assassin, uh, Charles Guiteau, should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. I don't know like how sound that argument is because Charles Guiteau shot the president because he believed that his work during the 1880 campaign season was so crucial to Garfield's win that he should get like a consulship, like he should be posted to Paris as a thank you. And then when he didn't, because he played a very inconsequential role, he said that God told him that he needed to kill Garfield and he chose an ivory handled gun to do it. Like, he specifically bought one because he thought it would look good in a museum exhibit someday. Because, obviously, it would be in a museum. It is not in a museum, although his brain is at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, which I think is kind of a strange irony. Anyway. I uh, Everything I know about Charles Guiteau and most of U.S. history I learned from the musical Assassins. So, um, I can't really tell you anything about him, but I could sing a song about him, but I won't. Ah. Oh tragic all right i was hoping that was going to come maybe at the end of the podcast (laughs) um anyway so uh beard was a pretty progressive guy um and sometime i think like roughly in the 1870s possibly a little bit before he seems to have like started hearing these stories about french canadian lumberjacks living in maine who had these very strange behaviors so like when they were startled they would jump really violently like obviously we all jump a little bit that's the startle reflex but this was like way out of proportion to the thing that was startling. Uh, Sometimes they would, like, actually hit something. They also would repeat back phrases, like, seemingly automatically, which is uh, called echolalia. Uh, They would also imitate other people's motions, like, also, like, totally unconsciously and, like, seemingly involuntarily. That's called echopraxia. Um, They would obey commands without thinking about it. So he talked about one guy who, like, he would sort of, if he suddenly, like, put his hand on this guy's shoulder, he would, like, and tell him to throw his pipe across the room. He would just, like, throw the pipe, like, seemingly unable to prevent himself from doing so. Um, so Beard, had got, he went up to Maine to investigate these people. Um, he found 50 total jumping Frenchmen of Maine. Uh, 
And he found, like, he went up there thinking that this was probably, like, a, a weird old folktale. Um, but he found that, like, it did seem to be a legitimate disorder. Like, these people actually could not control their movements in this very strange way. He wrote, when told to strike, he strikes. When told to throw it, he throws it. Um, any, like, any startling noise seems to have triggered this, uh, although the lumberjacks had kind of varying degrees of severity. And it's a, it's a little bit of an unsatisfying story in some ways because, like, nobody ever really figured out what this was about. It, uh, they actually now call the disease Jumping Frenchman of Maine, which is possibly the strangest name for a disease I've ever heard, but it's in the, like, like if you look up uh, rare diseases, this is listed. Um, there's one theory that it might actually be genetic somehow. So, I mean, it this disease occurred in like a small, very isolated group of people. And 14 of the 50 cases were found within just four families in that area. But it's also possible that it's a culture-bound syndrome, which is uh, like a disease that only seems to occur within a very specific culture or like within a particular group or society. So one example would be like uh, ghost sickness, which is something found amongst like Navajo people and um, also some like Creek nations um, where people become really preoccupied by the deceased. They develop like loss of appetite, suffocating feelings, nightmares, general weakness. There's also a phrase, I'm going to completely butcher this, Buffet Delirante, which is a French disease, um, like French as in in France and also French-speaking nations. <laughs> oh, I was going to say French as in not uh, Frenchman of Maine, but no, France. No, no, the, act the, the original French, but also like other nations where like anywhere that speaks French today seems to sometimes have this disease. It presents as, quote, fully formed thematically variable delusions and hallucinations against a background of some degree of clouding of consciousness. So those are like just two examples, but there's like, there's actually a, a lot of culture bound syndromes. Um, and the jumping Frenchman of Maine being like unique to this northern part of Maine is just sort of one example, but there's actually very, very similar, like almost exactly the same kind of it's like an exaggeration of the startle response, basically. Um, and there's really similar disorders that happen elsewhere in the world. So LATA, L-A-T-A-H, is basically the same thing, but that's found in parts of Southeast Asia. And Miryahit is a version that's found in Siberia. Um, so they are all like formally classified as startle syndromes, um, even though we don't really have any sense of like what they actually are. Um, but the idea basically is like, your startle response is like when you tense up all of your muscles when something really surprising happens. Um, and there are like other startle response disorders, basically, but that aren't like they don't have this culture bound kind of aspect to them. Um, so hyperplexia, I think, is a, an autosomal dominant. So it's a genetic disorder that involves like an exaggerated startle response. Um, and also just general stiffness. So like people who have this uh, tend to fall a lot, sometimes like really violently because they like can't control their muscles properly. There's um, episodic ataxia, um, which is also an autosomal dominant genetic disorder and is like what the name applies. So ataxia is like impaired coordination. So like being drunk essentially, like 
slurred speech, falling, stumbling, uh, episodic, meaning like it happens periodically, like kind of without explanation. That's not brought on by a loud noise necessarily. Um, Tourette syndrome is like kind of a related disorder, although Tourette's tics aren't induced by like a sound or, or something startling. Um, but originally they thought that maybe the jumping Frenchman of Maine had some kind of like very strange form of Tourette's syndrome, um, which I think is just kind of wild. Um, and I think like kind of weirder that this thing that sounded so ridiculous that it was thought to definitely just be an old wives tale about like weird French Canadian lumberjacks up in Maine is just like, it's just an exaggerated version of a very normal thing. Um, so that that's the jumping Frenchman of Maine. I, I can't attest to whether there are any, any currently jumping Frenchmen of Maine, but, uh, I do think that like the other, um, like Lata and Miria Heat, I'm apologize. I'm definitely pronouncing both of those incredibly wrong. Um, I think that those like still exist largely and like occur regularly so maybe there's some jumping frenchmen and we just don't know about them yeah wow that's fascinating and i was wondering while you were talking like how is this different from tourette syndrome um i'll admit that until recently i didn't really know much of anything about tourette's and my idea of what it was was really based on some like very ableist punchlines in 90s comedy films (laughs) um just because that is all I had been exposed to. Um, And um, I'll give you a a link uh, to add to your write-up of your fact on popside.com slash weird to this this guy I started following on TikTok uh, who has really changed my perspective on Tourette's. Um, His name is Glenn Cooney, and he's a dad from Guernsey in the UK. And uh, he just posts videos of himself and his family as they, like, cook or go shopping or whatever. Um, And those tasks are (laughs) all a lot more complicated for him than they are for uh, a lot of people. Um, You know, for example, when he's cooking, his tics will often have him, you know, throwing stuff in the air or um, doing things that could potentially harm himself even. Like I I saw one where he like put like hot oil on his head. Um, And but the thing is, he has such patience and good humor uh, with himself. um, And he is like perfectly (laughs) capable of cooking dinner for his family, having fun with his family. It just requires a different set of skills from him. Uh, And it's really uh, eye-opening, honestly, because it really puts into perspective how much able-bodied people and also just, you know, people whose maybe lived experience impairments, disabilities don't match this particular guy's lived experience um, take for granted in that, you know, when I open bag of salad, I... uh, I'm not going to tear the bag apart and throw this out at the ceiling unless that's something I really feel like doing, which, you know, maybe sometimes it is. Um, and yeah, you know, in in looking into this guy, as I enjoyed his videos, I found out that there were like a large group of people on TikTok who uh, thought that he or other people who were posting uh, stuff about their Tourette syndrome were faking it uh, because they either like didn't think Tourette's was real at all or they thought that it couldn't possibly look the way his Tourette's does, um, which is <laughs> so wild to me. Um, you know, like imagine uh, your worldview being so small that you think your lived experience and the bounds of your imagination about other people's lived experiences must encompass all possible <laughs> realms of existence. <laughs> like, anyway. Super interesting. I hope those Frenchmen in Maine um, 
you know, manage to have a good time regardless. Yeah. I mean, it's what's more amazing to me is that they were managed to be lumberjacks despite this, because that's a profession with a lot of loud noises. True. And sharp objects. Yeah. It seems <laughs> it seems somewhat hazardous, but maybe it worked because, you know, they were like all lumberjacks together and they all like understood and maybe they were just like hiding away from the world. Maybe it was good. I, I don't know. know. Really, really chill. Yeah, I guess Sorry, I was go just going to say that I, I think that for me, this all raises the question of our sensibilities about what's normal and what's not, right? And this is actually um, a question that I raise in my book. And I think that the, and now I'm actually forgetting what example specifically I use, but basically like, you know, when we think about like people who are disabled, speaking as someone who is disabled, right? The question of like disability versus disabled, I am... Um, that often we can reframe the world as a disabling place, right? Which is like um, the bag mm -hmm. of salad is designed for people who open bags of salad in a particular way. So if everybody d opened bags of salad in a different way, or if we were just aware that there's like a diverse set of ways that people need to be able to open bags, the bag would just be designed differently, right? Um, and so I'm thinking about this particular example and the fact that there were actually like lots of other examples from around the world that uh, came up with like different titles and stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, this gets framed as kind of like an oddity, but maybe it's actually not odd so much as something that gets hidden or under discussed. And that if I wonder how much our understanding would shift if it was normalized as like this is just... Um, and, and I think like Tourette's is actually an interesting example from my perspective as someone who used to be partners with somebody who had Tourette's. And I think it was something that like he maybe experienced shame about for a really long time. But I, the particular tics that he exhibited became part of like what I found attractive about him. They were part of what I found attractive about him. So I guess I'm just kind of wondering about like how much of this is the parts of the world that get recorded and therefore we perceive the world to be normal in a kind of way. Uh, so that that's kind of interesting to me. Particularly, I was thinking especially the 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 examples you brought up from some of the um, indigenous communities here in the United States. I was thinking about persistent complex bereavement disorder, which I think just got added to the DSM. It sounded exactly like people were displaying persistent complex bereavement disorder. Um, which is actually something that features heavily in Tracy Dion's wonderful, incredible new fantasy novel, Legendborn. And she actually makes a point of educating readers about this disorder because so many people have had it, but because it didn't have a name, it wasn't being properly treated. And so some of this, from my point of view, is like emergent phenomena, emergent in our consciousness, even though maybe they've always been there. So that was what I was thinking about when you were telling your story, Sarah, is I was like, this can't, unless there was something in the water, which like living next door to Maine, there might be. <laughs> but unless there was something in the water that does suggest that maybe there are pieces of like the human experience and, and sets of behaviors that we just don't understand yet. Yeah, it's a great point. And I mean, it's also interesting to me that like this was considered to, by a lot of people seemingly to be like obviously fake, basically, like they must have been exaggerating or like this was somehow intentional, which is like kind of an insane thing to think like, why, why, why would they fake something like this? Why would anyone fake something yes. like this? <laughs> um, but yeah, that like it took it took someone in this case, like, you know, a white male neurologist to come in and like give it a name for people to be like, oh, this is a legitimate thing. 
Um, I think about this a lot also, like, obviously in the last year, there's been a lot of reason to talk about anxiety and like such a high fraction of people experience anxiety, either like periodically slash like episodically or like just regularly in their lives. But we treat that as like, it's abnormal to be anxious. But like the percentage of people who experience anxiety regularly suggests that like, it's actually pretty normal and we just don't treat it that way. Yeah, I think I I hope that one of the things that we take from the pandemic with us is actually these lessons about um, how lots of people can struggle with mental health. Um, and that maybe that's actually the norm. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that would be a useful lesson for us to take away. And yeah. I've, I've, things I would like to take with us like that, and I would like to leave behind the pandemic, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, very much so. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. And I would love to hear about uh, what the heck my bananas are doing. Yes. (laughs) I don't know. Right. So I said your banana is emitting particles, and the particles are non-trinary. So what am I talking about? Uh, so any particle physicists who are listening would say the neutrino, of course. So neutrinos are my favorite particle in what I would like to call the particle menagerie that we call the standard model of particle physics. So uh, to, to get to the banana, we're going to go on a, a little bit of a journey through the particle menagerie. So I like to tell people that the standard model is everything that we have ever seen. But it isn't everything that we have ever physically felt. What I mean by this is that it's a theory that describes all of the particles we have ever detected and three of the fundamental forces. So that's the electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. And if you don't know what those things are, that's fine. You should pick up my book and it will help you. Um, Gravity is missing from the pictures. You might have noticed that I didn't mention gravity, and that's why I said the standard model doesn't describe everything we have ever physically felt, because we definitely feel gravity on a regular basis. Other things that are missing from the standard model include a particle that can make up the dark matter, which seems to be the majority of the matter in the universe. It's also my area of expertise, which is really the only reason that I'm mentioning it is because it would be weird for me to talk about the standard model and not talk about the fact that the dark matter is missing from it. That's a pretty big miss because dark matter is the majority of the matter in the universe and it's not in the standard model of particle physics. Um, It's also missing a particle that can explain dark energy, which seems to drive cosmic acceleration. So space-time is expanding, the expansion is accelerating, we don't really know why. Dark energy maybe explains it, and it's also the majority of the energy in the universe, so that's like another big mess for the standard model. So I guess I was supposed to be advertising the standard model, but I'm kind of crashing it right now. (laughs) Um, So even though the standard model is missing a lot of important stuff, it is in many ways a major achievement. Because it describes the basic building blocks of everything that we have been able to see so far, either through a telescope or through a particle collider, everything that we can see with our eyes is made up of things that are described in the standard model. So here are the names of the particles of the standard model of particle physics. There's the quark family, which has six members, up, down, top, bottom, charm, and strange. There's the lepton family, which also has six members, the electron, the muon, and the tau, 
plus three neutrinos, the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. So before I we, we get in deeper with neutrinos, I'm going to complete my picture of the standard model. So those are all the particles that make up the familiar matter of everyday life. But there are other important particles in the standard model too, namely the ones that we call, um, and I'm making air quotes for everyone who's listening, force mediators. This is a fancy way of saying that they are what enact the forces between particles. So one is already pretty familiar to folks, that's the photon. It's the mediator of the electromagnetic force, you've probably heard of that. If you're like a Marvel Comics fan like me, the word photon definitely gets thrown around. Not in like a, a strictly correct sense, physically speaking, but you've heard the word photon, right? So there are also gluons, which mediate the strong nuclear force, and the W and Z bosons, which mediate the weak nuclear force. And we could do like a completely different like fun facts episode about why these particles have all the names that they do. So finally, there's the Higgs boson, which was only finally detected in the last decade. So maybe you've heard of it because physicists keep going on about what a big achievement it is. And importantly, we believe the Higgs gives, the, gives mass to particles in the standard model. That is to all of the particles except for the neutrino. So now we're going to come back to the, the very mysterious neutrino, which I swear really is coming out of your bananas. We're gonna get, by, by the time I'm done, I swear everyone will understand that. Um, so the first thing that is strange and fascinating about neutrinos is that we know they have a mass, but we don't know exactly what their mass is, and we aren't exactly sure how they got their mass. So for the young folks who are listening, there are lots of questions here for, for you to be um, getting out there and trying to explore and understand. Um, the other thing to know is that there are 100 trillion neutrinos going through your body right now. Dang. Uh, yeah, and so just that's a few. Another hundred trillion neutrinos just went through your body again. A hundred trillion neutrinos yeah. every second. Um, they don't stick around, so they have really low mass. They're fast moving. We call them relativistic particles for that reason. Um, again, we know they're really low mass. We don't know exactly what that number is. Um, they're moving so quickly that they don't really have time to interact with our bodies. So even though we're being bombarded by them all the time, it doesn't have much of an effect on your body. So I don't want anybody to panic and think that they're being radiated by neutrinos. We're fine. You're good. And neutrinos are also the most abundant standard model particle in the universe. But because they're so fast moving and because they're so low mass, we actually have a hard time capturing them, which is why we have so many um, open, open questions about them. So the other weird thing about these neutrinos that are passing through us is that they are non-trinary. So I'm, I'm going to take credit. I, I came up with non-trinary. I'm, I'm, I'm like super, as, as an agender woman, I'm like really proud of this, this linguistic innovation. It's I'll, a great word. I love it. Yes. Thank you. Um, you might remember that I was just explaining that there are three types of neutrino, right? So again, there are the electron neutrinos, muon neutrinos, and tau neutrinos. So you might be sitting there saying to yourself, that sounds like there's a trinary. Um, where does the non come in? Like there are set identities for the neutrinos, but actually neutrino identities are fluid. 
So when a neutrino is flying through space, it randomly will change into a different type of neutrino. So an electron neutrino can just become a muon neutrino. A muon neutrino can just become a tau neutrino. And this phenomenon is known as neutrino oscillations. And it means that their identities are flexible or what we might socially understand as fluid. So we still don't have a good explanation for why this happens, but when we do, we expect it will give us insight into how they get their mass. So just to connect those open questions. So neutrinos are non-trinary. Okay, so I've told you there are a lot of neutrinos. Neutrinos are non-trinary. Neutrinos are also non-threatening. I haven't actually explained where they come from. So you might be wondering, okay, if they're moving fast, like, you know, why, why do they exist? Where, where are they coming from? Um, we have no idea where they're going. They're just kind of like flying through space. The 100 trillion flying through you right now are believed to come from the sun. So neutrinos are actually fantastic, or stars are actually fantastic neutrino factories because neutrinos are a common byproduct of nuclear fusion. So pretty much whenever there's a nuclear process, there are going to be neutrinos involved. Um, nuclear fusion is the engine that makes the sun and all stars continuously produce light. So in the case of the sun, the light is produced by hydrogen atoms being fused together and creating the next heaviest element. And neutrinos are actually a byproduct of this process. So it's not just creating photons that we experience as light, it's also creating neutrinos. And neutrinos are produced pretty much every time atoms are fused together and when they are actively broken apart. They also get made when atomic nuclei naturally decay. Um, and this might sound like, you know, a fact that's pretty distant from everyday life, like you don't expect it to be part of everyday life. But if you are a voracious or even just casual banana consumer, I'm on the voracious side of the banana consumption <laughs> spectrum. Same here. Excellent. Excellent. Um, that's the right way to live. Just FYI, that's the right way to live. Um Neutrino production due to atomic decay is actually part of your everyday life if you are a banana consumer, particularly a daily banana consumer. Uh, how is this at all possible? So as you may know, bananas have a lot of potassium in them, which is one reason they are good for you. They're particularly good for those of us who um, maybe have a, a disability that involves muscles tensing. I find that bananas really help me with my chronic pain issues. 0.01% of all naturally occurring potassium is an isotope called potassium-40, which means that bananas have some potassium-40 in them. So if some of the potassium out there is in this form, then some of the potassium that's in bananas is also going to be in this form. Potassium-40 is an isotope because it has a different number of neutrons than protons in it. In this case, 19 protons and 21 neutrons. And this isotope experiences a type of nuclear decay called beta decay, which happens because there is an excess of neutrons. Um, one of the neutrons decays into a proton. So as part of this decay, a neutrino is emitted. So each banana has 10 to the 17 potassium-40 atoms in it, and this translates to about 12 beta decays per second. 
leading to bananas emitting about 12 neutrinos per second. So your banana is emitting non-trinary particles. In addition to being delicious, bananas are neutrino production factories. And so now when you sit down to enjoy your banana, you can say to yourself, my banana is awesome because it is delicious, it is nutritious, and it is emitting non-trinary neutrinos. I love this. Have you guys, are you guys familiar with that, um, that XKCD comic where he, um, measures the amount of, uh, like radiation that you are exposed to in units of bananas? It's really, it's, I'm going to, it doesn't make any sense when I'm explaining it. Just, just, we're, we're going to put it on popside.com slash weird. It's really wonderful. We're going to link to it. I will show you guys. It's, uh, it's delightful. This is going to make me enjoy my bananas even more. Banana for scale, radioactivity <laughs> edition. Yes. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Hey there, weirdos. Claire Maldarelli here. I'm just popping in to let you know about a brand new podcast from the editors of Popular Science. It's called Ask Us Anything, and it's a bite-sized show that answers your most outlandish, mind-burning questions, from what the universe is made of to why not everyone can touch their toes. If you like the weirdest thing I learned this week, we promise you'll love Ask Us Anything, and you'll hear a few familiar voices, too. Check out new episodes of Ask Us Anything every Tuesday and Thursday wherever you get podcasts. Okay, we're back. And uh, Sarah, I think you were doing some frantic Googling of XKCD comics. Yeah, i just uh, doing a little live fact checking here. It is not in units of bananas. There is a big radiation dose chart uh, that, that the XKCD creator made and eating one banana is on there as a dosage. So you can use the banana for scale. It is not in terms of bananas, although it does make me think that perhaps I should make a chart using bananas as a unit. But yeah, a little, little fact checking there. <laughs> Always appreciate it. Um, so I'm going to talk about some slugs. All right. So as I said, I'm going to talk about sea slugs who just cut their own heads off for fun. Who knows? But they do it. Yes. This so, is totally, this is so metal. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Sometimes animals like just shed parts of themselves and move on, um, which is called autotomy, not to be confused with autonomy. Um, it's going to be really hard for me to say one and not the other, but I'll try. Um, and autotomy is really common in invertebrates, um, but even some vertebrates do it, including a couple of mammals. So, for example, if you're a crested gecko, you might drop your pudgy little tail uh, at the drop of a hat thanks to some especially brittle cells that are around the base of the tail. And that means you can just like squirm out of a predator's grasp. You leave the wriggling tail behind to distract them um, and you move on. And this is so common, actually, that in the wild, uh, allegedly, most adult crested geckos just don't have tails. Um, it's a trick you can only pull once, but they love to pull it. Uh, so... For many other types of lizards, a dropped tail is not like a permanent body mod. Um, the new appendages often grow back, though they usually look slightly different because um, they're like full of cartilage instead of new bone. So 
They might have slightly different shapes. They often are, their coloration is a little different because, you know, they're growing new cells. In some species, this is actually uh, a common way to mess with potential mating competitors because the lizards are less desirable uh, and also move more awkwardly when they're tailless. Sometimes the tail shedder will return to eat what they've lost because the tails can be really important fat deposits. So you don't want to let that go to waste. Um, and then, yeah, other than lizards, there are at least two species of African spiny mice that can shed and then regrow skin, sweat glands, hair follicles, fur, and cartilage as needed uh, to escape trouble. So they're just, they have just like tear away, you know, flesh. <laughs> they, they are not bothered by it. They just start over. And, um, of course, because they're the mammals that do this really well, scientists are very, very interested in what genes allow them to do this and whether they could help humans, like, live forever and, you know, grow new wrinkleless faces and stuff like that. Whatever we can get funding for, you know how science works. Um, but all of that work is very, very preliminary. But, yeah, in the invertebrate world, as you might imagine, um, it's just, like, full of animals that give up parts of themselves only to regrow them later, um, including, of course, sea cucumbers, which famously vomit up all of their internal organs <laughs> to avoid trouble. I tried to get, actually, for this episode, like, a good reason for, like, what the purpose of them doing this is. And it seems to kind of be, like, and just, uh, it's an evasive maneuver for when you can't physically evade, right? They, like, uh, there's all this, like, sticky stuff that comes out. So it's almost, they, they almost like Spider-Man, whatever like predators weird, are bothering them. It's like a weird offering. Like you can have yeah. this part of me and then maybe the rest have, of me can leave. You can have this part of me to eat. And also it's like sticky enough to distract you. And then I will spend some time regrowing my entire self. But anyway, we're not here to talk about sea cucumbers. We're here to talk about sea slugs. Very different. Um, so yeah, certain sea slugs may put all previously studied autotomous to shame. Uh, a study came out in March showing that Elysia marginata and Elysia atroviridis, which are two closely related sea slugs, uh, can decapitate themselves and then grow entirely new bodies. All of this started when study author Sayaka Mito, who was uh, at the Nara Women's University in Japan at the time, came across a decidedly headless slug in her lab's collection. And at first she was like, oh no, poor thing, it's going to die. Um, but then she noticed that its newly severed head was just like scooting around the tank and eating algae, <laughs> like completely Casual. nonplussed. Yeah. She also looked at it and was like, I think it did this to itself. Uh, it looked like there had been some kind of like acid that had weakened the area and that it had just like like, torn it out, like a perforated notebook page. Um, and then, much to her surprise, it survived uh, for the three weeks that it took it to completely regenerate its body, organs and all. Um, and I must reiterate that this was just a head. <laughs> it, it, it was starting from zero. So her lab's new study, which involved monitoring a bunch of these slugs throughout their entire life cycle, 
demonstrated that the two species often willingly decapitate themselves. Um, Not always, but often. And in about a third of those cases, they're able to just completely create new bodies. Um, Meanwhile, their former bodies, like, wriggle around in response to stimulus. um, And they can sometimes maintain heartbeats for months at a time before withering away. So that's freaky. Um, There is a great video that I'll link to on poptie.com slash weird (laughs) with a very cute looking little green slug head that's just like bopping around like a little cartoon character. It like pokes at its body. I don't know why. That's very (laughs) morbid. I don't like that it's doing that, (laughs) but it does. And the body, which looks very much like uh, like maybe like a leaf blown out of glass. It's like this very chunky, shiny leaf looking thing. It, It wriggles. Um, so again, kind of horrifying when you think about it, but really cute in the video, like so much of science. The universe is always more fantastical than we think it is. I think that... Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, we can't, we, we truly could not make it up. No. The first question of many is why? (laughs) It's a big one. Why Um, not though, you know? Why not just, just stare off your body? Yeah, I mean, I, too, have a complicated relationship with my corporeality, so um, I I see the appeal. <laughs> but <laughs> just, just start it over. Yep, yeah. Uh, does not spark joy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, why? Uh, it's not totally clear yet. All we know for sure is that uh, it happens. <laughs> and in the case of one sea slug in the experiment, it happened two times. I guess they oh. needed a do-over. Um, but one hypothesis the researchers have is that the slugs were reacting to the presence of parasites in their original bodies. Um, and this would be an effective way to cleanse your body of parasites, um, just literally getting rid of your whole body. That needs more research. I think some of the, like in one of the species, there was a really good correlation between having the parasites and tearing off your head. And in the other, there really wasn't. Um, And, you know, it's also just one study. But, you know, when this happens in, like, lizards and uh, those mice I talked about, it's about some kind of stress, whether it's something physically tugging at the easily lost appendage, or it's like, ah, there are ants attacking me. If I drop this tail, they'll be distracted and go after the tail and I can leave. So, It follows that, like, some kind of physical distress, possibly related to an infection or parasites, whatever, um, would be most likely caused. But more work to be done. More slugs to watch decapitate themselves. Uh, And then the next question is how? We would love to get some of that for ourselves. We would love to know um, how they can just uh, start over with just a head. It seems like some kind of chemical allows them to weaken a spot on their necks that's designed to allow for a clean break. Again, very similar, though probably different, you know, mechanism to like those geckos who have the really brittle base by their tail that's just like it's designed to be able to snap off when you want it to. Um, And it's likely that they can survive without organs or in the case of their old bodies without head for uh, such a long time for a really cool reason. It's because of kleptoplasty. Uh, which is one of my favorite words. Is that like stealing um, plastic surgery? <laughs> <laughs> um, almost. 
No, it, so it's when they eat algae, they're actually able to retain the chloroplasts of the algae cells that they eat. Um, so, of course, listeners, those are the parts of the cell that allow plants to convert sunlight into energy via photosynthesis. So, like I said, the, the slug bodies look kind of like, like beautiful blown glass leaves. Uh, there's a reason they look so much like leaves, because they kind of are slug leaves. They retain this chloroplast um, in their own bodies, and they're always getting at least some of their energy from the sun in addition to actually like eating and digesting the algae. So the researchers think that they may have like just enough um, photosynthesizing ability in their green little heads that it powers their, you know, weeks of regeneration and, you know, more morbidly powers the still beating heart of the body they have left behind um, until I guess it finally uh, starves to death and starts withering away. I was going to try to get into the history of attempted head transplants uh, in humans in this episode, but that is such a wild ride that I think I'm just going to save it uh, for another one entirely. Um, but yeah, I uh, I love these slugs. I love that they're out there doing it for themselves. Great stuff. Beautiful and disgusting, which is exactly mm-hmm. what I want in my science. <laughs> I just, I have to say, I found myself going over the various reasons why humans don't have this ability. Like, trying to have a conversation with myself about, um, you know, what would have been necessary for us to develop that that capacity. I mean, I have lots of weird thoughts about things like, I think, like, the trap muscle was a mistake in, in humans. <laughs> like, I actually just think it was, like, an evolutionary, like, error. Um, this might just be me speaking as someone who has, like, chronic pain. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, feel I understand. I, I frequently feel that many parts of my body are an evolutionary error. So <laughs> I, I get you there. Yeah, I guess I just found myself experiencing envy throughout that, that story. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Uh, all right. Well, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Mine was the slugs, to be honest. Very weird. Deeply weird. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go with the slugs too. I think I'm supposed to advocate for neutrinos. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of them, so they'll be fine. <laughs> so many just in your bananas, you know? Yes. Well, I'll be thinking about that fact probably every day for the rest of my life because I do eat a lot of bananas. So <laughs> Strong work. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Chanda. And everyone, definitely check out The Disordered Cosmos. It is on sale now, and you will love it. Thanks for having me. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. 
Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.